if please don't feel like if you didn't grab something to drink yet, or I think are there there's cookies still, so as safely as you can, if you need to maneuver over there as we're talking to get yourself something to eat or drink, please go ahead and do that. Um, thanks to all of you for coming to uh, the first of our spring colloquium series for honors. So some of you are here because of that, um, so that you know the um, honors program here at Bethel. Um, I'm co-director of honors. Sarah is the co-director of the semester, while Sam Mulberry over there in the corner, who is another co-director, is on sabbatical. So technically he's not, we're supposed to pretend he's not even here and not ask anything of him, but... I still managed to ask him for three things today. So, but um, this series that we have is uh, allowing the students to engage with different um, uh, exp experts on our own campus as well as from outside of our campus around this year. Our honors theme kind of builds a little bit on the convocation theme in that it's, the theme is about courage. Uh, and so different people have taken that in all different directions. Uh, but special welcome to Professor Larson's Literatures of Faith class. So thanks to you guys for being here. Uh, we know that some of you, because of various commitments, may need to sneak out. So we'll leave the door open as best we can if it doesn't become um, too loud in the hallway. And please go ahead and know that when you need to go, that's totally okay. Um, but really, the format that we want to have is really that of a conversation. And so we are going to uh, allow um, our speaker, Ibu Patel, to um, engage with us, ask us questions. We are also going to ask questions. And um, if you were in convocation this morning, we thought it might be a helpful place to start, just to sort of see what thoughts and reflections um, you had after listening to Ibu this morning, or if you were in a class this morning and heard him speak, what thoughts you had. So um, coming into this event today, even if you didn't really know a whole lot about it, I always think student discussions go much better if you talk to each other for just a minute. So I think what we'll do is we'll just give you about two minutes or so to kind of chat with each other. And maybe you don't feel like you know a whole lot yet, which is just fine, but um, you know, what are you, what, what were you interested in of what you already heard? Or what are you interested in hearing in our time together? So why don't you talk for about two minutes and then we'll kind of draw everybody in together. Okay, so we know you have ideas because you've been sharing them with each other. So let's hear a few of the things that you were talking about. Why don't you just, if you feel comfortable, share with the group, um, you know, what is a question you have, something inspiring you heard today, something you're hoping to explore, what are your current thoughts having connected with um, the person that you're sitting next to? Just share some of your thoughts or questions and we'll pool them and then we will let you dive right in. Josh, I was going to call on you if you didn't raise your hand. All right, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I was tracking with you during a convocation today. Uh, but your very ending story um, would be signing in the peace treaty. And you kind of ended a little abruptly. Are you able to kind of speak a little more to what that story meant when you said he won? And then, I don't know, I just, I'd like to get a little more on that and the story behind it. Good. Yep. When you were discussing the different um, elements to interfaith leaders, one of the first things you said is that they recognize the starving village. But um, how are some other ways that we can kind of recognize what our community needs and how to give it to them? 
because uh, she recognized that they were starving and came up with the pot idea. So how can we help other groups in our communities in kind of like being able to understand what they need? Good questions. What else? Other just comments and observations? It have to be a question. All right, we're going to come back to this group later on. You just wait. <laughs> you want to dive in with the two that we have? Let's get a couple more voices okay. in the room. appreciate about what you've heard. Yeah. Is there some sort of, you mentioned in convocation that Muhammad was um, involved in three wars? Three um, battles. Three battles, okay. Is, he, um, is there any sort of like justification amongst that for like Christians or like the Pope would have like a holy war? Very good question. Is there anything behind yeah. Like, is there just war treaty, treaty in itself? It's, it's not, there's there's a holy war and just war, right? But yeah. in the Catholic tradition, there's a just war. Yeah, that's um, actually what it is. Yeah, it's an excellent question. Those are two different questions. So everything you set up to that to that last line was on one track, and then the last line was a different track. So did you want to continue with? questions. Um, so the truth of it is, I'm going to start here because I actually know the least about this. Right? Um, uh, there are a whole set of laws, etc., that that govern or guide Muslims in situations of, of war, um, which are incidentally not followed at all by quote-unquote extremist groups. Right, um, which which would have been followed by the, the Prophet Muhammad, but frankly, I know very little about it. Uh, just I'm just like not that interested in war, you know. Um, uh, but the the category of just war, there is there are rough analogs in Islam and Muslim scholars. In fact, you know, one of my mentors and friends, Sheikh Hamza, says uh, if you want to know what what Muslim ethics look like, just open up what the what the uh, Conference of Catholic Bishops say down the line, 
right? And he's like, it's not everything, but it's a, the way that Catholics think about the, the Catholic Christian tradition is quite similar to how many Muslim schools of thought would think about it. But, but because that is not my, my principal interests are not Muslim law or, or war, I don't spend a lot of time there, right? But I am really interested in stories of Muslim peace and Hudaybiyah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a full circle on this, right? Uh, I realized that I wasn't finishing the story, but I think that I think he wins as the last line is super dramatic. It's like, like, I'm out, you know? So like I chose the drama over finishing the story, but then I'm really glad I had this session with you all so I can finish the story. So... um, so what you have to imagine is here's, here's a guy who in 610, I mean, this is not unlike Jesus, right? Like starts preaching uh, basically a gospel of monotheism and mercy. And, and by doing it, dramatically threatens a lot of the standard practices of, of the people around him in Mecca. And, and threatens it in a couple ways. So, so one of the ways the Meccans at the time, and I'm, you, you'll, you know, I'm, those of you who have taken Amy's course, you'll have learned some of this, right? One of the ways the, the, the people in Mecca at the time make their money is by uh, they, they are the guardians of the Kaaba. They're the guardians of the, of the home that's built by <coughs> Prophet Abraham and his son, we believe, in Islam, Ishmael, okay? Devoted to the one God, right? Except that... And, and the guardians, meaning like they will ensure your safe passage to offer your circumambulations, your prayers at this place. Okay? So different tribes around the Arabian Peninsula would come and place their idol on or near the Kaaba, and they would circumambulate the Kaaba praying to that idol. And the Meccans allowed it to happen because it was good for business. Because, of course, to enter the gate to the city, to, to do the circumambulations, you have to pay, right? So basically, they were like, we will let you pray to whatever idol or god you want as long as you pay the tax, pay the due. So Muhammad emerges. He says there's only one god, Allah. Allah in Arabic means the god and we, we should do what Abraham did. What did Abraham do in his father's corner store? Come on, y'all know this. What did Abraham do in his father's corner store? Crashes the idols, right? He crashes the idols. What, is, what, what happens when Moses uh, uh, comes off Sinai? And the Israelites, what's one of the, the initial egregious mistakes they make? They start praying to a what? Right, right? And Moses begs God's mercy for prayer, right? So in other words, praying to idols in the Abrahamic traditions, there's a long history of the prophet saying, you can't do this, right? So the prophet Muhammad emerges says, you can't do this. You can't pray this. So this is bad for the Meccans' business practices, right? So they run him out of town. They run him into a city called Yathrib, which becomes renamed Medina, city of the prophet. And there's this struggle between Muhammad and the emerging Muslim community and the, the Meccans and their business practices which allow for idol worship and polytheism. Okay? This set of battles across the 620s. 
And then I think it's in the year 630. This is, this is where I begin the story in, in the convocation talk. Muhammad says, enough. We're doing something different, right? And he, he says, we're, we're, we're going to go as pilgrims and we're going to do the circumambulations. I don't remember if it's Hajj or Umrah. Hajj is uh, uh, the circumambulations around the Kaaba during a specific time of the year. Umrah is just going at any time to do the circumambulations, okay? And then the whole Hudaybiyah story happens, okay, which, which many of you heard. Uh, they agreed to, to not enter Mecca at that time. They agreed to return any, anybody who wants to deconvert out of Islam. They, uh, they allowed the Meccans to not do the same thing. In other words, the, the Meccans don't have, to, don't have to allow Muslims uh, people who want to convert to Islam to, to go to Medina and so it's it's a very one-sided treaty and Muhammad agrees to cross the term prophet out of the treaty it's a big big deal right it's like there's a rough analogy to Jesus saying okay don't say I'm the son of God okay don't say I'm the son of God don't say I'm the Lord and Savior uh, and they go back and when I say he wins Next year they return. Same thing, dressed as pilgrims, all in white. Um, uh, labayak, Allahumma labayak, which means, oh God, here I am, oh God, here I am. It's the chant of the pilgrims. And they enter into Mecca, and droves of Meccans convert into Islam. Droves of them, not a drop of blood, right? Droves of Meccans, right? And for me, the principal issue there isn't the conversion. For, I, for a minute, bracket the religious conversion, right? The principal issue there is these people are saying, I want to live in your world. I want to live in your world, right? Like the, the generosity you showed, the magnanimity you showed, I choose you as my leader. And I, I think, I think human beings work this way, right? I think human beings work this way that, that when you're telling the story of a world that's coming, there is a limited utility to arguing about it, right? There is, and you might lose the argument in the moment of, but what you want to convince people of is, in this world that's coming, we all thrive. In this world that's coming, we all thrive. So I'll let you call me whatever you want to call me. Okay, I'll, I'll return home today. I will give you your folks back. I won't ask for, for, for it to be reciprocal. I'm telling you this world is coming. And I'm telling you it's going to be better for you. And the way that I'm acting now with generosity, you get a taste of that. You see what I mean? There, there is, and for me, that's like a spiritual lesson. There, there, is, uh, there is deep wisdom in saying, I'll take this loss because I trust that you are going to want to live in the world that's coming. So one of your main points is, if I'm interpreting that correctly, is you know don't 
don't find conflict in the little things, display how you would like, display kind of how you'd like the, the world to become, how you'd like others to treat you, and then in the end, others will see that the way you were acting in humility is the right way. I, it, yes. Right, and, and there's a way. There's a way of doing it that's like kind of after school specialish, you know. And then there's like so. There's a story I told this earlier, but there's a story that Sufi Muslims tell about Jesus. Jesus is in the marketplace, and uh, um, people are insulting him, and in return he blesses them. And he comes back to his disciples, and his disciples are like, "How can you bless people who insult you?" And Jesus says, "I give only what I carry in my purse." Like he wins. He wins. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Like, who, who wins? Do the people who insult Jesus win in, in the time of Jesus? Or does Jesus win? Right? And a big part of that is, I think he's signaling, here's the world that I'm building. Right? Like, I don't care what you do to me right now. I'm building this world and you're going to want to live in this world. So that's that is not a material wisdom. That is a spiritual wisdom, right? A, a material logic says, am I am I winning the next quarter? You dig what I'm saying, right? Like like is my am I beating you now? I think a spiritual wisdom is like, hey look, I'm playing for the next decade, I'm playing for the next century. And that, that means a lot of trust building. And it means I'm, I'm all right compromising. I'm all right, I'm, I'm all, I'm, if, if, if you feel better taking this, take it. You know, people, so I'll give you, I'll give you uh, an interesting, like an analogy from my world. They'll get to these other kind of questions. Um, so, I don't know, one out of every eight or ten times I speak, somebody will stand up and they'll just like, they'll just ask like a rude, offensive, they'll say something rude, stupid, and offensive about Islam and Muslims. Okay. And um, at that moment, I know that, I know that there's 400 other people in the auditorium who are watching my response really closely. And if I choose the route of arguing one-on-one -on -one with this person, you know, no, the Quran doesn't say that. You're only quoting extreme whatever, right? I, I'm playing the wrong game, right? What people are watching is the affect of my response. So who cares if I don't, if I don't meet anger with anger? Who cares if I, if losing is saying, well, you're saying this is what my people did? Let me tell you what your people did. That's losing, right? Winning is saying, there's 400 eyes on me right now, and mostly what they're looking at is, am I going to let you make me angry? Right? Am I going to let you turn me into a caricature, that the caricature you just presented? So it's a great situation for me. Right, if I can maintain discipline, it's a great situation for me. Right? I'm gonna let you offend me like this 
and I'm going to play for these 400 other people. How do you respond in a situation like that? I mean, mostly I tell like, uh, um, I, I, I'll tell the, the Sufi Muslim story on Jesus. Mm-hmm. I'll just be like, look, I'm just shifting the paradigm. I'm just right, like, like here's what you're doing, and I'm just going to make it clear. I'm, you know, you, you're throwing stones, and I'm growing flowers. Right, so you go ahead and throw stones, right? And I'm growing flowers. And my bet is that most people want to live in gardens and not in quarries. Um, so a big part of of uh, how and why I do what I do is it's just because I grew up with people from different religions, and their religion was a big part of their goodness, but it was never worn on their sleeve. And so the more I learned about it, the more I was like, wow, like this is, this is, this matters, right? I got a Mormon girlfriend, I had a Jewish girlfriend, I had a Hindu girlfriend. They're all people I admired in a huge way. And you scratch the surface and, and a huge part of their goodness is their religion, right? And those are like, those are people who are close with me. But, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. He says, people want to make of me many things, but in the deep recesses of my heart, I'm a Baptist minister. And my highest commitment is this, Jesus is the Son of the living God. Uh, above anything else, I'm a Christian, right? So, so that kind of, that like piques my curiosity. I'm basically like, you know, why is it that the dimension of identity that's not talked about in diversity work is the dimension that in my experience and in at least a thumbnail reading of history plays a significant role in lots of people's goodness? You know, and a part of that is like, you know, I, I didn't want to be a jerk. I, I wanted some of that source of goodness, right? So I'm looking at like my Mormon girlfriend. I'm like, how is it that you make you're so even all the time? How how is that, right? And she's like, look, I you know, my belief is that there's a there's a there's an alternate reality which is beautiful. And so if something crazy happens, I just move to that, right? So. You all have this in your life, you know, right? Like, you all know enough people, soccer coaches, other professors, teachers from public school, whatever. Their, part of their goodness was their faith commitment. And you're thinking to yourself, but I don't, I don't believe in Islam, but I, I know that that's part of the reason you're who you are. I, you know, I'm, I'm not Jewish, but I know that's part of the reason you, you do what you do. I think that that's really, I think that that's really beautiful. Um, so on your question, like I think, I think a lot of what an interfaith leader does, and I think that this is what the traveler does in the Stone Soup story, is she rolls into town and, and she, she is she sees things that other people don't see, right? And as I said this in the talk, other people see a starving village and they, they continue with that pattern and she sees a feasting community and she says, how do I get these people from here to there? Right? How, and, and I think the hard part is, is, in that, is in that path. How do you get people from place X to place Y? Right? But I think a lot of this is, this is why 
at IFYC were principally not about interfaith books or interfaith activities. We're principally about interfaith leaders because that that's it's the ability of an individual to like assess a situation, to draw on relevant knowledge, to create the right kind of activities. Right? We really, really believe in leaders. By the way, if you've been a camp counselor, if you've like. Uh, if you've babysat, if you've like coached sports, you've done this, right? You've done this. Uh, at any given moment, you're like, okay, my team is being crazy. They need to go from here to there. How am I going to get them? To, what am I doing to get them to do that? You know, and that we really believe in that, and we believe that that the mix of people from different religions and close quarters is special in a variety of ways. Somebody asked me about that. I'll just address that real quick. One is is the, the, the depth, how deep religious identity goes, how core it is. And the other is that the expression of one can, can sometimes lead to the marginalization of, of, of another, right? So when I say we Muslims do not believe Jesus died on the cross, I'm speaking a truth that is, is a violation of one of your truths. And that's just the deal in religious diversity. So how does an interfaith leader deal with the fact of of competing truths, right? And still get people to cooperate. And there are not that many identities that that are so, um, in which the expression of one is a doctrinal violation of the other. You guys look super somber. <laughs> For me, so much of this is like, it just, it's just a fact, right? It's just a fact that the grass grows. That's just a fact, right? So there's, there's lots of people in America, right? A fifth of Minnesota uh, is first or second generation immigrant, and lots and lots of those people are, are from religious, quote-unquote, religious minor, not, not Christian backgrounds, you know? It's just a fact. So, that, so those are your soccer fields right now. Those are your basketball teams, those are your doctors, those are your patients, those are your teachers, those are your social workers. You gonna make it work or not? Right? You want you want people to contribute or you don't. You know? So that's one thing. And I think another thing is it's always been that way. Right? It's it's always been that way. Um Sears Tower, the John Hancock building, they're designed by a Muslim guy. You know? Uh, Fazur Rahman Khan is his name. Um, a guy named Ahmad Erdogan 
builds a, a label called Atlantic Records, right? He's a Muslim from Turkey. He brings Led Zeppelin across the Atlantic to the United States. You know, like it goes on and on and on and on, right? Muhammad Ali, like he's a Muslim, right? So there's, and, and of course, I'm just talking about a single faith community. You could, you could play this game with any faith community. And, and you start to ask the question, do you really want an America minus these contributions, right? Do you, do you really want an America minus, minus 230 Catholic colleges and universities? Do you really want an America minus, uh, minus the hospitals and art museums that Jewish philanthropy has supported? Do you, do you really want that America? You know? I, I think the answer is probably no. You know? I think the answer to that is probably no. And... Whatever the answer is, these are the kids in your soccer fields now. So, I mean, like, literally, right? Like, like imagine yourself as a soccer coach, a bunch of 13-year-old kids, St. Cloud, Minnesota, St. Paul, or whatever, walk out of the soccer pitch and just say, sorry, so you seven kids can't play. I don't care how good you are. You can't play. Right? I saw a picture, I saw this Norman Rockwell thing a hundred years ago. You don't, you don't look like the kid, you don't look like the dudes in that painting. You can't play. I just don't think, I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't think you're going to win very many games. Um, so why not live into it, right? Why not, why not just figure out how to coach that team? I don't know. Other ideas on that? I mean, I could be wrong, right? People are totally free to evangelize, and just like just like baseball has certain rules, right? Like you don't score touchdowns in baseball, right? Um, in the interfaith space, there's a there's an agreement that in this space we don't score touchdowns, we we score runs, and there's this set of rules in this space, and we abide by these rules. And then on, after this, after we do this you might go off and play football and do other things. You see what I mean? So so part of what I mean that part of what I mean by that is people who do evangelize should not only feel free to do that but supported in doing it. It is a it is a deep part of at least two faith traditions, Islam and Christianity, right? Uh, Baha'is Mormons also. Um, but within an agreed-upon interfaith service project or dialogue, etc. I think that the rules of the game say there is no need for overt proselytization here because the purpose of this space is different. This is not a judgment on other types of religious activities. It's just that the purpose of this space is different. I have a 
we're really excited about here um, with your work at yeah, thank you for that. You know, I'm excited about this moment in American history. I really am. Because I just, I just don't think human beings like ugly. You know? I just don't. Like, so, like, I, I, I think that... Um, I don't think you want to kick people off your soccer team. You know? I... I don't think I don't think you want five kids in your classroom to feel like they're aliens because they don't eat pork. Um, and I don't. I think that we live in a moment in which there there is going to be an articulation and an acceleration of of what Amy Sincere says is is. Uh, um, the rendezvous to destiny. There's room for all of us, you know. And I think that that's hard work, right? I think that that's hard work. But I think that that some of the most important moments in U.S. history have been in responses to overt ugliness, right? So when I quote Lincoln uh, in the 19th century, I mean, think about think about how remarkable this is, right? If you just Google Lincoln. Uh, blood of their blood, flesh of their flesh. You'll get this long, the long. I think it was a debate with uh, with Stephen Douglas that he's in. Okay, and it's in part a debate about immigration in the mid nineteenth century. And what Lincoln is saying is, look, there's a whole set of people in our country who do not trace their ancestral line back to the founders, right? But guess what? Our founders believed that if you bought into their words in the Declaration of Independence, you were blood of their blood, flesh of their flesh, right? So we forget that at one point, the Germans, the Irish, the Norwegian, the Swedish, your great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers were the unwashed immigrants. And Abraham Lincoln stood up and said, no, 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 no. These people are called Americans, right? But it took a moment of ugliness, the rise of the Know Nothing Party in the mid-19th century. Anybody heard of the Know Nothing Party, by the way? Like, so, I mean, the amazing thing about the Know Nothing Party is so many people know nothing about it. You know? <laughs> I'm actually serious about that, right? In the Know Nothing Party uh, was, a, was one of the early nativist movements in American history. And... It's, it's focus was on Catholic immigrants. Uh, and it said, America's a Protestant, first Protestant, last nation. Um, and they won 75 seats in Congress. They won entire state legislatures with, the, with, with, a, with a single plank in their platform. America's a Protestant nation, no, no Catholic should be here. And Abe Lincoln stood up to them, right? Different version happens after 1928 uh, um, when Al Smith loses a campaign for president. He's the first Catholic to be a major party candidate, candidate for the Democratic Party. And his candidacy goes up in a set of anti-Catholic flames. And this group called the NCCJ emerged, the National Conference on Christians and Jews, and they start talking about America as a Judeo-Christian nation. Right? And now, 
we we are so accustomed to thinking of America as a Judeo-Christian nation, we don't we don't realize that the term was invented in the 1930s. I mean, you all thought God gave it to Moses at Sinai, right? <laughs> Seriously, right? Or the pilgrims like arrived at Plymouth Rock and they were like, oh look, Judeo-Christian country, right? Perfect for us. It was invented in the 1930s as a response to bigotry. So I just think I think we live in that moment right now, right? I think I think we live in a moment where there's just overt overt racism, and I just think that that good thing there is an opportunity to articulate something different, something better, something more beautiful. People would rather live in gardens than in quarries, and I think we have to be patient in that, right? Right? Like I, I don't think a good way of doing that is to say. Uh, I always knew you were a racist. I, I don't think a good way of doing that is to need to win every argument in the moment. Um, I think a good way of doing that is to say, so here's what George Washington stood for. The bosom of America is open to the oppressed of every nation and religion. Here's what Abe Lincoln stood for. If you believe in the Declaration of Independence, I don't care what your ancestral line is. You are blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote it. I believe in the nation Jane Addams built. This is a cathedral of humanity. Right? I believe in that nation, and I'm building the next version of it. And I think you would rather live in that than this other nation. Right? So I think we live in that moment. Thank you. Uh, first of all, nice to meet you. My name is Bryce. Um, <laughs> Ibu, nice to meet you, too. Uh, this comes from uh, your work in Diver... Diver divine purpose in a diverse and messy world. Uh, he said, the prophet Muhammad was not ascetic. He was not celibate. He lived in the world. He loved his wives. He loved his children. When he had to go to war, he went to war. But I think what makes his example so powerful is that when presented with a choice, he chose paths of mercy and beauty. And my question is, um, when he made choices that were neither beautiful or merciful, how does that play into your idea or what you think a courageous and a faith leader should be. When the Prophet Muhammad made choices that were neither beautiful nor... Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, so there's multiple ways of looking at, at that, right? One is that, that things that were done, that things that were done in particular moments... Um, were bounded by the historical circumstances of those moments and were abrogated or abrogated by other activities which came at different times, right? So there's, there's an interesting, there's an exegetical process in the Quran in which uh, some verses are meant to be abrogated by other verses, for example, right? Um, but actually, my personal take on that. So there's like nine ways to skin. It's just like there's all kinds of interpretive paradigms when it comes to Christianity is that in both the Quran and in the Prophet's life, there's a Zahir and a Batin. The Zahir are the things that we see, the external things. The Batin is the internal or hidden meaning of those things, right? And so... Part of this for me is this sense of 
what's, what is happening that I don't know or don't see? And part of that's just the definition of faith. You know, part of that's the definition of faith. Um, part of that is uh, a community paradigm which says you read the Quran in the light of mercy, which is not to say every verse in the Quran read straight up would qualify as merciful, but if you read the Quran in the light of mercy, it brings some things to the surface and not other things. It emphasizes some things and not other things. And there's a whole set of things, I think, in, in religious traditions that I'm just willing to say is a mystery, and I don't have a logical answer. You know, I, I think that, yeah, right, I, that I, and I'm not, I'm, there, there's lots of people who do Muslim apologetics. I don't. You know, so I look at the prophet's life and I'm like, what of the, what of this is useful and inspires me today? Right? I look at the Quran and I say, what of this is useful and inspires me today? Yeah. You know, and I, I, I'm not a scholar of this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's a, that's a totally legit question. Um, and... It's it's not the kind of scholar or Muslim that I am. And maybe framing it a bit differently. So my interpretation of like Muhammad is that it's probably easier for him to make the beautiful and merciful decisions. That's what he would want to do, and he would not want to make decisions that were not merciful or beautiful. But I take it that sometimes he had to. And I suppose that's more of a question: is do you think it is a role for leaders in your faith? Like ministries to sometimes have to make those hard decisions. Yeah, what, that's a great, that's a beautifully phrased question. Thank you for that. So one of the distinctions between, between Muhammad and Jesus, for example, is that is that, and I, and I, I say this in my convocation talk, right? Um, Muhammad is a general, a president, and and a prophet, right? So he's building a state, and he is leading a religious movement. That's that's not quite the same. Um, that's not quite the same for Jesus, right? Jesus isn't Jesus isn't building a state, right? Uh, Paul builds the church. Constantine builds the empire, right? There, other people do different tasks, if you will. Um, I'll give you if if this analogy works at all. So, Gandhi was a pacifist, like like uh, an uncompromising pacifist, an uncompromising pacifist. Uh, the first Prime Minister of India was one of Gandhi's closest aides and students, Jawaharlal Nehru. Gandhi never forbade Nehru from building an army. He could have, right? He could have said to his student, Nehru might not have listened, but, but Gandhi never said, you shouldn't have an army. He just didn't want to play that role, right? I think there's this kind of implicit sense of like, look, if you're going to have a nation probably need an army that wasn't that wasn't Gandhi's role in a way Muhammad doesn't have that choice you know he, he has to play those all those roles are in one you know um, 
do I think that there are hard decisions that have to be made? I think I think the question that I think of that is absolutely. There's a great article, which it's like I think it's a it's perfect for a, a, a group like this by Michael Walzer called "The Problem of Dirty Hands." Do you all know this article? Do you ever sign this article? I do. Yeah, it's a great article. So uh, let me see if I get the thumbnail sketch of this right. So it's World War II. The British break the Nazi code. Okay, or they think they've broken it. Okay, they think they've cracked it. But in order, which is the code meaning when, which city are the Nazis going to bomb and when. So they think they've cracked the code, but what's the only way to know for sure? What? What is it? They have to, like, the Nazis have to, like, set up a message in order for the Nazis to bomb They have to what? Let the bombing happen. That's exactly right. No, you're, 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 you're right there, right? But you, you break the code, and you say, the code says the Nazis are going to bomb Coventry at 9 p.m. on Friday night. What's the only way to know if, you, if, if you're right? You have to wait to see if they bomb Coventry. So if you're the Prime Minister of Britain, what do you do? And then what? Then the Nazis know what? And then what do the Nazis do? They change the code. And what? And by evacuating Coventry, what have you now opened up? What? Think about this. If, if the Nazis change the code, that means you don't know when the next, what city and when the next bombing is going to take place. So they bomb Manchester. They bomb Harrow. Right? They just keep on going, right? You've saved Coventry. You saved those 50,000 people. But the war is prolonged. It's the problem of dirty hands. So if you're the prime minister, do you say, we're going to see if we got this right and let them bomb Coventry and sacrifice that city? And then we got them. Because we've cracked the code and we can go after them from here. If you crack the code, you know where Nazi planes are going to be at any time. Right, you know where the army is positioned at any time. I I don't think that that's easy. By the way, this is what Truman faces with the atom bomb, right? This is what Truman faces with the atom bomb. I, I don't think that's easy at all. And honestly, I don't want to make that decision. You know, I don't want to make that decision. So it's it's one of the reasons I don't study Muslim war stuff. I don't want to make those decisions, right? But there's some. I, I run an organization. There's there's some decisions I I have to make. Right? Gandhi doesn't want to be responsible for raising an army, but he knows that if Nehru is going to sign up to be prime minister, he's going to have to have an army. Right? So it's a really interesting set of questions. It's a really interesting set of questions. So, I mean, it's a, good, it's a really good set of questions for, for you all. Right? Do, you want, do you want to be the British prime minister? Somebody's got to be the British prime minister. Do you want to be that person? Do do you want to go to bed that night thinking I've this is I've made this is on this is on my head, right? 
I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I think that that's in part like a leadership challenge. I think we're almost done here. I think we got one or two more. This one is kind of a quick question. It's kind of more about your observations of life. Um, so you, we have the, the we have a very um, unique opportunity to talk to you about this because you're a Muslim viewing Christian culture. And of course, there are things that we Christians have to acknowledge that we do that probably annoys you guys or just doesn't like some things that are. Stop with the Easter Bunny stuff. Where do you get the bunny from? <laughs> That's not us. <laughs> Keep going. That was a joke. <laughs> Oh, did, you not, did you not think that was a joke? No, I was laughing and I was like, am I, am I doing something with <laughs> Oh my goodness. But yeah, but like that's exactly what I'm talking about, except like, um, like, is there anything that you could tell us that would make us more aware that when we try to like reach all people in love that we could do to make it so we don't push those buttons. When you reach all people in love in, in evangelism, you mean? You no, know, even in just the interfaith things. It's like maybe like the, the Easter Bunny was a like sarcastic example. <laughs> that, but that was like perfectly in the alley of what I was trying to say, I guess. Like things we emphasize that may not words are not working today. So things that we may like put a lot of pressure on that puts more pressure on the Muslim faith or yeah, I'm just going to stop talking. No, so so that's a really interesting question. Um, so I, you know, I mean, I, I, there's, there's, there's many ways of thinking about this, but here is one way, right? Um, do you know that there are like really, really old churches in America, like mid 18th century churches, which buried their dead facing towards Mecca? So, what do you think that means? They're black churches, by the way, historically black churches. What do, you, what do you think that means? There's Arabic script scratched underneath the pews of First African Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia from the time of its founding, late 18th century. Why am I saying that in response to this question? Are you like trying to uh, say that like Islamic roots are like deeper than we think? I mean, you'll forgive me for thinking that that people who pray in Arabic built this country also, right? 
and that um, I, I think we live in a pluralist nation and I, I just think I have equal stake. Right? So I go to Wheaton College and uh, I'm there in a circle like this and it's before dinner and somebody somebody says a prayer to the God of all names, et cetera, et cetera. I lean over and I'm like, please tell me that the reason that the first prayer in Wheaton College is history to not mention Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is not because I was here a Muslim, right? In other words, like, I want you to be totally who you are, right? And you, you see what I'm saying? Like, you pray to Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know what I mean? Like, don't, if we're together and it's your house, that's how you pray, right? If we're together and we're at a restaurant, that's, that's who you are, right? And, and I have equal stake. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not asking for accommodation. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, like I feel like, you know, Baldwin says, uh, um, this is vis-a-vis the black experience. He's like, you know, um, I'm not a ward of this state. I'm one of the first Americans to arrive on these shores. Right? So I feel connected to that religiously. Muslim slaves were amongst the first people on these shores. I feel I'm connected to that, right? Um, and so I am interested in, in collectively building a pluralist civilization, you know, that has, that has deep respect, proper space for different religious articulations and commitments, but mostly is defined by how people from those different places decide to, to, to respect to relate and work together. You guys, you all keep your Easter button. You know what I'm <laughs> I know we're almost out of time, but I got one more question. The uh, one of the hardest parts I think of interfaith would be you really get to know someone from a different faith. You really care about them as a person. You develop a friendship. Um, you find common interests, and then when it comes to the core of who both of you are, you're thinking of eternal life. I mean, one person thinks this is the way to the eternal life, another thinks this is the way to eternal life, and they conflict. How do you reconcile that when you really deeply care about someone and your, your views are kind of opposed? And, of course, you may not do it in every context, but in your heart of hearts, you want them to convert. You know, um, because you care about them so much. So how do you, yeah? How do you reconcile that? Do you just kind of let it be and hope that one day they'll come to believe what you believe, or that the other way around? Or I mean, is there a point where you just stop? Yeah. You know what? Like, like. You write me that email. Seriously, right? Like you will you will have one of those relationships in your life. Right? I mean the most amongst the most prominent Catholic conservatives in America is a guy named Robert George, he's a professor at Princeton. He's married to a Jewish woman. I just I think that that's I just think that that's like I think that's increasingly the definitional to the human condition. That that 
you will be in deep, loving relationship with a set of people with whom you, you, they're, uh, they have some understanding of ultimate concerns that are, that are askew to and oppositional to yours. And I just think that that's like, that is, that is part of the definition of being human now. I think there's parts of that that are really difficult, and I think that there's parts of that that are kind of beautiful, you know? Um, you know, Cantwell Smith says, uh, all, all of what I write about religion, I, I, view, I view all of it as my common heritage as a, as a human being reading the human experience and condition, right? I think that there's, that there's beauty to that, and I think that there's also just like a sense of... Um, Like just being askew, you know. So, so I'm an Ismaili Muslim. My wife is a Sunni Muslim, and the Aga Khan, the the kind of Pope figure of Ismaili Muslims, was in the United States about a month ago, and it is it is the supreme experience for an Ismaili to be in the presence of of the Aga Khan when he's in a spiritual guise, right? We believe that that is he is the container of of a quantity of the nur of God, right? He's a Dalai Lama or a Pope figure, right? My wife couldn't be in the room. If you're not in the smiley, you can't be in the room. So, like, we go into the we go into this like convention center. I do a talk on interfaith cooperation because that's what I do, right? Speeches on interfaith cooperation, uh, um, and then the kids and I leave her in the in this place, and we we enter we enter what's called the didar hall, right? And there's like there's like a lot of toe, throat tightening in that. It's it's very it's very difficult. You know, even though we're both Muslims, she can't participate in that. And she's mad about it. She's not happy about it. She's mad about it. I know because I hear it. You know? Um, I, just, I, think, I just think that that's, that's definition allows the human, human condition. Right? So when you encounter it, I don't, think you can, I, don't, I don't think you can square that circle entirely. I don't think you can resolve it entirely. Well, we've come to the end of our time together. So much wisdom to glean, so thank you. Um, and I hope that you feel inspired to leave, as a, to have the courage uh, to be a person who plants flowers instead of throwing stones. And let's thank Ibu for his time with us this afternoon.